Well, good morning. It is uh, so good seeing all of you guys as you make way, your way back to your seat. Uh, go ahead and uh, grab your Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Um, if you're new here to our church, welcome. Uh, we're so glad to have you. Um, you've noticed uh, today there's a lot more children than all the other services, um, and that's intentional. And so what we do here at our church is the first Sunday of every month, uh, we have what we call family service. Um, it's an opportunity for our kindergartners and up to join us um, in our corporate worship because they are, in a sense, part of the church just like you are. And our responsibility is to disciple them and to show them how great God is and to proclaim the gospel to their little hearts, even though I know for some of you are thinking, Neil, there's no way they'll understand you, there's no way they can relate to you, and I will say, you're probably right, but what we also believe is anytime the Word of God is being proclaimed, that is not a dead message, but rather it's a living, it is active, it pierces our hearts, and we believe that the Word of God can even pierce the little hearts of our children. And so here's what I want for you guys to do. Uh, uh, parents, I don't want you to stress out about the behavior of your child as long as they don't run around with their shirts off around the sanctuary during the message. If they talk a little bit, that's fine, okay? It's not the end of the world. But here's what we, what we can do together, okay? Help them try to engage me in the message. If they don't, I'm going to ask questions. Help them to, to answer it. Uh, look, Open up the Bible with them. Try Try to find the passage. Try to read with them together. Try to help them write a couple of words or maybe a couple of questions. And so there's so many different ways, different, uh, depending on your child and their ability of what they can comprehend. There's so many different ways we can help our children to engage in, in the service, okay? So everybody understands what we're doing? So before we, we get going, um, we need to pray because we really, kids, like even I need to pray to, for God to help me to, to teach you the message. And you need to pray with me and your parents with me to help for you to understand the message. Because we cannot understand God's word without the help of God that's given us his Holy Spirit. So this is why we're praying. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. We thank you that you've given us the ability to read and to understand your word. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that reveals truth to us. So when we read your word, Lord, and when we talk about it, can you give us eyes to see? Can you give us ears to hear? Can you give us a mind to understand? And can you take our hearts and can you convict us? Can you help us to learn about you and help us to follow you. Lord, if there's sin in our life, can you make that known to us? Can you help us to see the nature of sin and the deception of sin? And help us to respond to look to you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into our text in chapter 3, we need to quickly go back to chapter 2, because chapter 2 kind of sets the stage for chapter 3. Now, for some of you kids, you weren't here when we talked about chapter 2, so I'm going to quickly uh, give you a snapshot of what's happened in chapter 2. Now, remember, in chapter 2, and I think you guys know the answer, God planted a garden in the middle of, what is it known, the garden of? 
Eden, yes, it's planted in the middle of Eden. And what God did is that he planted this beautiful garden that had four rivers, and he planted all kinds of trees with all kinds of fruit and all kinds of flowers and all kinds of shrubberies. And then this garden was given to man, and God gave man a job to do. Does anybody remember what was the job he gave man to do? Work the ground, cultivate it, take care of it. And so this garden was given to man. So here, God gives man this beautiful garden with all kinds of trees and all kinds of fruit. He gives it to him as a gift, a garden that protects him. A garden, in a sense, that represents the presence of God where God dwelt with man. And so not only did God provide for man, he gave them a wonderful garden to live in shelter and food, but he also gave man a wonderful helper suitable for it. And, and, and we learned last week about that helper, and he needed this helper to accomplish the, the command that God gave him to subdue, to rule the earth, to go and multiply and have tons of babies. He gave man the gift of woman. And so all these wonderful gifts that God gives man, he gives them shelter, he gives them provision, he provides his presence, he gives them one another. Of all of it, he gives them one command. Now, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, and if you like making notes in your Bibles, you need to circle this verse because we're going to constantly go back to this verse and read what this actual command is. And so God gives man one command. He says to him in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, he says, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now notice how this command starts. Does it start with you cannot, or does it start with you can it starts with you can. In other words, God says you are free to eat any kind of fruit you want to, as much as you want of it. Knock yourself out. It's kind of like your mom telling you, you can eat as many cookies as you want to. All the cookies in the world you can eat. Don't get any ideas, okay? Your mom's not going to say that. But there is one tree I do not want you to eat from. In other words, it's like parents saying, eat as all the cookies as you want to, but there's this one special cookie I want you to stay away from. And so God gives men the freedom. He gives them the, the provision, and then he tells them one thing he cannot do, and if he does, he will certainly die. Now remember this command because we're going to go back to it. So here's the stage. In this beautiful garden... The man lived with his wife, perfect harmony, perfect marriage, fulfilling the job that God gave them to do, enjoying all the fruit they can eat, enjoying the presence of God, walking in the garden with God, obeying the command of God. Because again, we don't know how long they were in the garden. Things were perfect. Things were paradise. And then we get to chapter 3, and everything changes. Everybody understands where we're going? All right, let's look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent 
was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So, so let's just stop here. Now, when you read this passage, we're kind of caught off guard because what's the, what's the very first thing that kind of catches our attention? The fact that there's a snake and he's talking. And so all of a sudden we're like, whoa, time out here because snakes don't talk. And so now all of a sudden we have all these questions about the snake. But I want you to notice that the woman doesn't call a time out. Notice the woman doesn't say, hey, hey, snake, why are you talking? She's just listening to the question. So here's the question we've got to ask ourselves before we move on is, who is this snake? Where did the snake come from? What is the snake trying to do? Now, all of us are saying, oh, we know the snake is Satan, and it's true, but I want to show you why we know it's Satan instead of you just saying, well, mom and dad told me it's Satan, okay? I want to show you from the Bible how we know it's Satan. So here's a couple of things what we know in the text. I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to read verse 1 again. Okay, so what does it tell us about the snake? What's the very first thing it tells us about the snake or the serpent? It's the most cunning or crafty of all the wild animals, okay? So we know it's cunning, we know it's crafty, it's trickery, it's slimy. Here's the second thing we know about the, the snake. Where did the snake come from? The Lord, because what did it say? It says it is the most cunning that the Lord God had made. So the serpent has its origin from God. God made it. And another thing we learn about the serpent is we know a little bit about the character of the serpent based on the question it's asking. Now look at this question. Is this question, do you think he's for God or kind of against God? He seems like he's kind of against God. He seems like he's opposing God. So, so we know from the character of the serpent who's opposing God, he almost seems to speak against the things of God. And even though Genesis does not tell us the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, is the voice of Satan, he, he just shows us the question. So we have to find the answer to this question in the rest of the Bible. Now, in the Bible, there is one creature that hates God opposes God and wants to destroy everything that God has made. And we all know who, the, who that person is, right? Who is that person? It's Satan. But where in the Bible do we see that Satan? I want to show you. So let's go. Uh, you can just write the reference down because I don't think we'll have time to turn to it because we need to move on. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, okay? Yeah, quickly go turn to John 8, 44. Parents, help your kids turn to that. Because I don't, want you to I, want, I don't want you to believe me just because what I say. I want you to believe me because of what the Bible says, okay? So, so Jesus is talking in John 8, verse 44. And he's talking to, to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious leaders. Does everybody have it? Okay, we good? Let's move on. He says, Jesus is saying, you are, the you are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He, that's the devil, he is a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So what does Jesus tell us about Satan? He's a murderer, and he's a, he's a liar. Everything that comes out of his mouth is truth or lies? Lies, exactly. Now let's look at the very first question that, that the serpent is asking. And he said this, he, he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any true fruit from any tree in the garden? Is that true? No. Does God say there's one tree you cannot eat from? Yes. So it's kind of like a lie with a little bit of truth. And let me just tell you right now, if something is half true, it's a lie. Okay? So notice the very first thing he does. Now, so, so that's how we know it's Satan, because what is he doing? He's in the question, he's lying about God. That's how we know it's Satan, because Jesus says Satan is the father of lies, okay? And here's the very first thing Satan tries to do. He, in a sense, he doesn't outright challenge God's commands, but what he's trying to do is he's challenging God's motivation behind the commands. That's why he, he adds this subtle reality of, did God really say that? In other words, what he's trying to do to the woman, he's trying to cause doubt to the woman who's listening to Satan. He, he's saying, did, do you really think that God loves you? Do you really think that God cares for you? Do you really think that God uh, wants what's best for you? It almost seems like God is kind of restricting you a little bit. Because he is saying, you can't eat from this tree. Maybe God does not know what is best for you. Maybe God is withholding from you. The second thing the serpent does is, he refers to God as God. But notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, what is the name for God in chapter 2, verse 16? Is it God or Lord God or Lord? Lord. And in some of your translations is Lord God. What does that mean? Remember, two weeks ago, I think, we said that when the name for God is just God, it really shows his transcendence, his, how powerful he is. But when we, when we read the word Lord God or Lord in some of your translations, it shows us that God is deeply personal, that God enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And so when the Lord God gave them a command, it was a personal command. He spoke to them as if he's in a relationship and in a covenant with them. But what does Satan do? He doesn't refer to them to God as Lord, but rather as God. So in a way, he's basically telling the woman that God, who is impersonal because he's too big to worry about you, gave you this command. So now all of a sudden, the thoughts go into the woman's mind saying, okay, he's withholding, he's restricting, Maybe now he's impersonal, which means he really does not like me. He really does not care for me. He really does not love me. A third thing that the, the, the serpent does is the serpent slightly rewords God's command. Notice how God's command started. Look at verse 16 again. 
you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. And notice how Satan rewords God's command. You can't eat from any tree in the garden. He purposefully takes God's command and puts it in a negative way, removing the woman and the man's freedom to eat from any fruit and solely focuses on what they cannot eat. And basically, he's trying to take God and saying, God, in a sense, is restrictive. God is stingy. God does not like to share. And all of a sudden now, the woman is starting to doubt in God's provision. So what is the very first thing we can learn about this first verse? I want to teach you the deceptiveness of sin, okay? So if you're taking notes, here is the deception of sin. And it begins with the opening question from Satan. Sin begins with a lie about God. Sin begins with a lie about God. Like what the devil tried to do is he tried to cause doubt in the woman's mind. He tried to make the woman believe a lie about God, something this woman probably never thought about. She probably never thought about God being not good and loving and caring, that God being not generous and God being impersonal, because all she's known is God being good and loving and kind and abundantly providing and, and walking in fellowship with Him in the garden. But now all of a sudden, that thought crossed her mind. And instead of saying, you know what, serpent, you're out of your mind. Look at how she responds. It's almost as if she's now entertaining this lie about God. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Hmm. Here's the first mistake the woman made. She was willing to actually talk to the serpent and entertain those lies. When somebody feeds you a lie, what do you do? You run. You don't listen. You don't argue. You run. Stranger danger. That's what she should have done. But she's entertaining it. And the way she's entertaining it, she, in a sense, as she's entertaining it, she's rehearsing God's command. And look at how she takes God's command and interpret God's command. Look at what, how she says it. We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But there's two words she takes away. Look at, the, look at verse 16. You are free, that's the first word she takes away, to eat from any. So two words she takes away, free and any. You're like, well, what's the difference? Well, it's almost like your mom saying you can eat some cookies compared to your mom saying you're free to eat any cookie. Which one sounds better? You're free to eat any as much as you want to. You have freedom in that. Don't get any ideas. That's a bad, but that's the best I can come up with. Sorry, sorry, parents. She takes away free and any. 
And then she does not name the tree by its name, but rather she names it by its location. What does she call the tree? She says, the, free in the, the tree in the middle of the garden. But God's command is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So she's focusing more on its location rather than on its significance, which means she's kind of annoyed. It's starting to stand out. And also, look how she refers to God as God or Lord. God. So now, instead of saying Lord, she's saying God. Now she's starting to think maybe God is impersonal. Which means the serpent now has succeeded in drawing her in, getting her intention, and now she's taking God's command and in a sense, misinterpreting it a little bit. She is veering off. And what do we learn if something is half true? Is it true or a lie? It's a lie. So sin starts with the deception of, um, of it starts with a lie about God. The second thing about sin, if you're taking notes, sin takes root when we begin to believe that lie about God. So it started off with hearing a lie about God, but now it starts to get a hold of her, and it's almost like a, a vine that is growing deeper and deeper into her heart, and now she's taking that lie, and instead of running away from it saying, you're nuts, you're insane, I want nothing to do with it, this is not God, now she begins to believe that lie. She begins to entertain that lie. And now she begins to believe, well, maybe God is impersonal. Maybe God is not good. Maybe God is not generous. Maybe God is withholding from me. Maybe God does not have my best interest in mind. Because why would he restrict my freedom and say, I cannot do this? So this Satan, this Satan has lured her in. And now... He's got her. Look, look, at, look, look at what Satan says. Now he directly opposes God's command. Look at verse 4. Satan says, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What did God say? What happens when you eat? You will die. What does Satan say? You will not die. As a matter of fact, your eyes will be open. You will see things from a new perspective. You will see things the way God sees things. And what belonged to God alone now can belong to you. In other words, here's the temptation. The temptation for, for, for the woman is that she can be like God or that she can become her own God. Now, here's the third thing we learn about, deception, about the deception of sin. It starts off with a lie about God. It takes root when we start to believe that lie. And then the third one, if you're taking note, is sin focuses on what we can gain and neglects what we will lose. It focuses on what we can gain and neglects on what we will lose. Okay? What do you mean by that, Pastor Neil? What I mean by that is, let's say, for example, your mom and dad says, do not eat this cookie. You look at this cookie, and what all you can focus on in that cookie is 
how good it is, how good it looks, how good it'll make you feel. But then you fail to forget the consequences of what will happen when you, you eat it. The possible punishment. What you will lose in the long run. But that's what sin does. It only focuses on what you can gain and neglects on what you can lose. So for the woman, Satan says, you will be like God. You will have a new perspective. You will be able to tell yourself what is good and what is evil. You will be your own master. You'll be determining for your own self what you think is good and what you think is evil. And you become your own master, your own God. And for the woman, she's like, oh, that sounds great. But he fails to say that when you do that, here is what you'll lose. You'll separate yourself from God because you've rebelled against God. And the only thing that is waiting for you is death and destruction. Now, let me quickly talk to mom and dad here. Have you noticed how, how, how sin promises all that you can gain think about the new um, pandemic with gambling all the commercials all you can win and they even bite you in by in the beginning there's nothing to lose but here's everything you can win that's what sin does it focuses on all you can gain and neglects on what you can lose all right kids you're back with me here The trap is set. The woman is in her tank. All she can think about is, I can be like God. I can determine what is good for me. And look at what she does in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. Here's the fourth thing we learn about the deception of sin. It starts with a lie about God, then we start to believe that lie, and then we start to focus all on what we can gain, and we forget about what we can lose. And the last one about sin is this, and I, wanna, I really want to emphasize this, okay? When most of us think about sin, we think about disobedience, we think about a mistake, we think about missing a mark or a standard, and sin is all that, but more. This is what sin is, and this is what we see in the text. Sin, if you're taking notes, is a willful rebellion of usurping God. It is willful in a sense that she is choosing to eat that. And what is she trying to accomplish in eating that? To become like who? Become like God. So when we read the story, it's not like, oh, they made an innocent mistake. They should have never have done it. It's a moment of weakness. No, it is a willful decision that she has made in the hopes of rebelling against God and becoming just like God. And here's how we know that. You're like, well, maybe that's a little harsh. You know, let, let, let. notice in verse 6, what if the, woman's, the woman saw that the tree was... 
good for food. Remember um, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, who is the one who declared all things to be good? God. So in other words, God has always declared what was good and what is evil. And man who lived under God could only declare what is good and evil based on what God has declared to be good and evil. And God declared to this woman, do not eat from this fruit. Why? Because it is not good for you. But all the other fruit is good. Eat of it. And what is this woman now declaring for herself? This fruit is good. Do you see? It's, it's, it's not just an innocent mistake. But it's saying, I'm not going to listen to God. I am going to declare for myself what is good and what is evil. And this is what she's done. Uh, also notice, when God created things, he created everything in order. You had God, you had man, you had woman, and then you had beast. And so God spoke to man, and man listened to, to God. And in a sense, man spoke to woman, and the woman listened to man, and the man and the woman oversaw the animals. That's how God created everything. But in our story, notice everything is reverse. Who spoke to who? The animals spoke to the woman, and the woman listened to the animal. The, 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 the man listened to the woman, and who listened to God? Nobody. So the woman saw, she took, she ate, she gave some to her husband. She falls into the trap and the deception of the craftiness of sin. And here's what we, we, we notice, which is really strange. Nothing is said about the man. There's no interaction. He doesn't say. What does he do? He just... He just takes it. He just eats it. And as much as we want to speculate what, what his role was, what he should have done, like what we do know is this, that when God speaks to man and woman, who does he initially address? Who does he hold accountable for? Who's responsible for their actions? Man. He's going to address man. So somehow man drops the ball. And after they ate it, they, they, they realized that now they're naked. They run, they make coverings, their eyes are opened. And, and notice, immediate, they did not die immediately, but what we're going to see is they certainly did spiritually die because now they've been separated from God. And what we're going to see through the rest of the book of Genesis, anytime we read a genealogy, we're going to read so-and-so lived for so many years, and what happened to them? And they die. And you know why the author is saying that? He's reminding us this is the consequences of sin, death. And then we come to Enoch, and we're like, oh, he doesn't die. And what happens to the next guy? He dies. Let's move on. Having rebelled against God, look at what happens next. Verse 8 says this. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice how it describes God. Impersonal or personal? Personal. Because what is God personal? Because what is God doing? 
He's walking in the garden. Why is he walking in the garden? Because he needs fresh air? No, he's walking in the garden because he is in constant relationship with the man and the woman. But now, instead of man running towards him and walking with him when they hear God, now we learn something else. What did they do? They hid. Why? We're going to find out because they were afraid because they realized they were naked. Let, let's, let's look at verse 9, and then we're almost done, then we're going to do response. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And so the Lord asked the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I, I ate. Notice this. God walks in the garden. And who initiates this conversation? God does. He asks a question. Now, do you think he knew the answer? Yes. But why is he asking this question? Why is he calling man? Where are you? He knows the answer because what God is trying to do is he's trying to provide an opportunity for man to come forward and to come clean. And what does man do? He comes forward and he says, I have run away from you. I'm hiding because I am afraid. Something that he's never experienced before. His entire life, all he's known is when God walks, we join him. We run towards him because we can openly walk with God. Now there's this new emotion called fear that he's never experienced before. And now instead of running towards God, when he hears God calling, now he hides in fear because he is naked. And what that means is he feels shame because of his guilt. It's kind of like that emotion you feel after mom and dad's told you not to do it. Do not play with a ball in the house. And what did you do? You played with the ball in the house. And now you broke the heirloom. And your mom asked you, why did you do it? And you look down and you're like, I don't know. And you're overwhelmed with emotions. You're afraid because of what mom and dad's going to do to you. And you Feel guilt and shame. That is the emotion they felt. And as God continues to question man, look at what man does. He self-justifies. He makes excuses. And he blames God, and then he blames the woman. He says to God, he says, I only did it because you made her and gave her to me. Notice that this gift was a perfect gift for him. In the beginning, he said, whoa, woman, this is a wonderful gift. God, thank you for the gift. And now he's saying, yeah, this gift you gave me, that's a bad gift. I would have never done it if it wasn't for that gift. It is all your fault and the woman's fault. And that's the story of today. When you get caught doing something you're not supposed to be doing, what do you say? It's not me. 
I did not break that heirloom. It's the ball that broke the heirloom. Somehow it went off my hand. And by the way, you gave me that ball. And it hit the wall and then ricocheted and hit that heirloom. Or some of you just put the ball in your brother's hand and just run away if you're really smart, a.k.a. really evil. But that's what we do, right? We don't take responsibility. We blame everybody else for our actions. And so God turns around and he looks to the woman and he said, what did you do? And notice, as much as we want to blame the woman for everything, notice she responds. At least she doesn't blame God, but she certainly does self-justify and blame the serpent. And the Lord is now about to give them the charges. And we're going to talk about it next week. Okay? So let's do response. You guys did such a great job today. So if you want to know, kids, why you have a hard time listening to mom and dad, why sometimes you feel certain emotions, mom and dad, if you want to know what's wrong with your kids, if you want to know what's wrong with your husband, if you want to know what's wrong with your wife, if you want to know what's wrong with your boss, if you want to know what's wrong with the country, or the political system, or the political party. Let me tell you, it's called Genesis chapter 3. This is what's wrong. And next week we'll talk more about it. But, but I want us to start applying this passage to ourselves here. Because here's the reality. Just like uh, Chris said, in, in, in confession and assurance. The story of man and woman willfully rebelling against God is not just their story, but it's also whose story? It's our story. Like, like as we look at, at this text, we, we see it wasn't an innocent disobedience, but it was a willful rebellion of wanting to play, replace God with self. And it all starts with a lie about God, and now entertaining that lie, and now to begin to believe that lie about God, and the action of unbelief and who God is and who he says he is about himself now becomes the breeding ground for all kinds of evil. And then we begin to put ourselves at the center of everything. We make everything about ourselves, thinking that we ourselves can be like God and determine what is good for ourselves, what is evil for ourselves. And here's what the world's telling you. You are your own master. You are in control of your own destiny. You can de determine for yourself what is good and for yourself what is evil. And you can, you can determine all kinds of things and no one can say anything about it. You know what that is called? That is called you trying to play the role of God. And you might think, oh, this is great. I can be like God. And you focus on all that you can gain. And here's what you're going to learn in life. And you can look at your mom and dad and they'll say it's true. You are not a very good God. And the only thing that is waiting for you when you try to play the role of God is lots of sadness and lots of tears and lots of destruction. That is the reality. And here is why it's so important to know God. Not what we think about God, but what the Bible says about God. Because you, 
and me. Humanity has this enemy that wants to destroy all that God has made. And the way he destroys, wants to destroy all that God has made is by feeding us lies, by telling us half-truths about God. And if we don't know the God of the Bible, guess what? You're going to start to believe some of these lies about God. And when you start to believe some of these lies about God and you start acting on those lies, there's only death, there's only destruction. And this is why you need to know the God of the Bible so that when you are being fed these lies, you can say, hey, time out here. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what the Bible says that God is. And then when you hear those lies, let me tell you now, even adults, quit trying to entertain these lies or even argue with these lies. Run from those lies. What's that famous movie? Run, Forrest, run. Run. If the woman only ran. But it's not enough for us just to run away from those lies. Where do we run to? We run back to God. And notice... Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Instead of running away from those lies, they should have run to God. And even after God calls them, in a sense, they're not running to Him. They stand before Him, and they still run away from Him with their excuses. They still try to self-justify themselves in their actions. But here's what we're going to see next week we see a glimpse of God's mercy. Knowing what they've done, God does not destroy them. But what does God do? He calls them. And as He calls them, He provides them an opportunity to come clean. And even though they refuse to come clean and they blame everybody else, God now gives out their punishment, the consequences for their actions. And even as God gives out the consequences of their actions, there's this verse next week that talks about hope and victory that it will have over their enemy. And this victory and this hope will come from the offspring of woman. And the entire book of Genesis is about this offspring that's going to accomplish a victory over our, of, over our enemy. And we all know who the offspring is. His name is, his name is Jesus. And Jesus finally comes. And he lives a life we could not live. And he dies a death we were all supposed to die. And he calls us. And as he calls us and as we hear his voice, Do not run away from him in your guilt and shame, but run towards him. You know why? Because he's taken care of your guilt and shame. Do not come to him and say, it's everybody else's fault, and self-justify yourself. But come before him and say, God, you're right. I've rebelled against you. I thought that I could be a better God than you, and I knew what is And God says, I accept you, not because what you've acknowledged you did is wrong, but I accept you because what my son has done. And you've received what my son has done by acknowledging that what you've done was wrong. That is a step of faith.
So this morning, if you hear his voice, if you hear him calling, run towards him, knowing God will justify you and God will take your clothes of guilt and shame and sin and give you new clothes because of what Jesus has done and the victory he's accomplished for you on the cross. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, can you forgive us of the lies that we have believed about you? Forgive us for the many times that we think that you were not a good God, you're not merciful, you're not kind, you're not generous, you do not know what is best for us, and we have placed ourselves in your place. We thought we could do better. We thought we knew what was better. And Lord, ultimately we have rebelled against you, and we have learned the hard way that apart from you is only death and destruction. Lord, can you help us to continually run towards you, to continue to believe the truth that you tell us about yourself in your word, to continually believe that you've made a way for us to go back with you through your son, Jesus, to believe that we don't have to make excuses for our actions, but we can take responsibility for our actions, knowing that you will accept us because of what your son has done for us on the cross. So help us in humility and in genuine repentance to come before you and to turn from our sins and turn towards you and to trust you in your goodness. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.